Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, Ireland's fastest man under sail, the country's ocean economy, and an extraordinary tale of survival at sea. Oshin van Geldern has been windsurfing since he was a teenager and has set numerous speed records on his board, clocking up speeds of nearly 50 knots, making him one of the fastest in the world. He's just returned from Namibia and another record attempt, and I met him this week at his home in Loch Shinney. I've just been at an event in Namibia um, called the Ludritz Speed Challenge, which is in a town called Ludritz. Um, the, the idea is this: we go to this event where a course is set up where we're trying to break the windsurfing speed record. Uh, and I was one of the participants who was at that. Okay, you went very, very fast. Do you hold the Irish record? I hold the Irish record, which I set in a previous event there, and this year I was going to tr- basically to try and improve it. Um, what is the Irish record? So the Irish record in knots for the sailors, it's 49.87 knots, average speed over 500 metres, which is about almost 94 kilometres an hour. Okay, so if you think of boats travelling, that's too fast to water ski off the back? Oh, way too fast, yeah. Mm. Way, like you know, water skiing boats would do probably 30-ish knots thereabouts, I'd say. It's faster than the fastest speedboat we'd see around. Yeah, that's one of your. Yeah, that's one of my boards. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's faster than most speedboats. Um, but that's the attraction of windsurf. Part of the attraction of windsurfing is the the sensation of speed. Um, you know, obviously that ninety four feels extremely fast. But even if you're not going going that fast when you're beginning, because your body is part of the rigging of the whole equation. You know, you're 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 balancing this sail which can move independently in all sorts of directions so you become part of it um, and therefore it feels quick even when it's not that quick. You're still wearing crash helmets if you fall off it's going to hurt. Oh yeah at, at 94 kilometers an hour it's 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 it you, you bounce and skip like a skipping stone you know and then there's whiplash injuries and cracked ribs that kind of stuff that's mm. the typical thing and, and the the body of water that we're sailing on is a very narrow canal it's about as wide as this this room we're in now um, and you know, we're travelling at twenty-five meters a second, and it's only it's only whatever six to eight meters wide. So, you know, if the wind pulls you off to the to the wrong side, there's basically a, a sandbank, a wall, hard wall you're going to hit. So, it it keeps your attention. Okay, tell me about this competition that you're involved in. Okay, so the the event is, as I said, the the Ludwig Speed Challenge. Um, it's a one month long event, um, where a canal, a ditch, is dug into a very flat beach. Say, you, you could go to say sandy mount pool bag when the tide is out it's that kind of flat sand and then they di- dig a channel into that and pump it full of water and um, it's only about 70 80 centimeters deep and i said it's about whatever six or eight meters wide and um, the the reason we go to luderitz in africa the whole the whole way there is because the wind only ever comes from one direction in this particular town when it's when it's blowing hard and like very very hard like 50 60 knots of wind but because the direction is always the same direction, therefore they can dig a channel of water in the beach at exactly the right angle okay. to get the highest speeds. Who goes to this competition? Oh, windsurfers from all over the world. Like from, basically from like the world champion um, or 40 times world champion, a guy called Bjorn Dunkerbeck, the most famous windsurf in the world. He was there. Um, the fastest sailors, ex-world record holders, people like myself who are going more for national records or personal bests. Um, and people who just want to go and challenge themselves, you know, there's there's a, there's quite a range of of people. Um, I mean, you do have to be at a certain level to to consider doing it and be able to go down the course. Mm. 
but it's not it's not <laughs> okay. all it's not all full time professionals. You know, it's not yeah. beginners either, though. Do you know, it, it is experienced windsurfers. The, the biggest challenge for any of us going really is is trying to. You, you, we're, we're looking at the GPS on our arm. You know, you're you're trying to beat your own personal best. And um, you know, I've done competitions for years and years and years um, in racing and in weight, like all sorts of windsurfing. But this thing is still the reason for going. Is I wanted to go and see like, on a, on a proper windy day when it's when it's blowing fifty sixty knots, line up there with the biggest fastest guys in the world, and then see what I could do in those conditions. So it's 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 a personal challenge for me. Um, but at the same time, for those guys also, it's their personal challenge. Some of them are going for the world record. Mm. I'm I'm a little bit below that level, um, being a smaller guy. But um, again, it's the personal challenge. So it, it become, you're about you're about five ten. I'm five ten, five eleven, and eighty one kilos. You know, these guys yeah. are all six foot four, six foot five, and one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty kilos. You know, they're they're big rugby player kind of size. Mm. You know, we'll talk about the the wind and the course yeah. in a minute. But why Namibia? It's, uh, it's an extraordinary country. If anybody's never been there, it's just above South Africa on the the Atlantic coast. Side. It's it's an amazing country. Um, South Africa as well. Basically, you, you get wind. There are a lot of wind. Um, it's a sea breeze that comes up from Antarctica. Um, cold air. Cold air, yeah, cold air. Um, it warms up a bit blowing over the desert if, if the angle changes slightly. But basically, it's air that's trapped between the hot land and the desert that's inland and then the co there's a very cold current of water out to sea about 20 kilometres out um, which is why actually that stretch of coastline is called the Skeleton Coast. And because it's a sea breeze it comes in when the land heats up exactly. is it very predictable? It is a, basically a thermal breeze there's a couple of things that need to line up like a low pressure off one side and a high pressure of them but basically if, if, you know, if it's a cloudy day it's not going to be as windy you know, because yeah. the land doesn't heat up as much. And when you talk about 50, 60 knots of wind, what's that, force 8 or 9? Um, 60 knots is force 10, that's storm force. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, and it was gusting up to 64, 65 knots, but, you know, kind of a constant wind was 55-ish knots. Okay. And um, still touching for nine, nine, force 9, force 10. And people will be able to see pictures of it in a film that you've made on your various channels, which is Ushin 777. It's windsurf seven 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 um on Facebook or Instagram or whatever yeah. um yeah we like, part of it is is trying to show people what we do um and what's possible and hopefully inspire other windsurfers or people to get into it but other windsurfers as well because this is very much sailing um out of the box you know out of your comfort zone which is again the the reason for me to go and the challenge for me is is to push the limits and find the limits uh, and I'm not there yet I think even the speed I did I'm, I'm still one to go back because I know I can do more we didn't get the ideal conditions we got close to it but not not quite so what what did you get to this time um, this time was four, I said 49.87 knots average speed over the 500 meter course um, and I think from in, in perfect conditions I can get somewhere between 51 and 52 but on those days the biggest guys will be breaking the world record but which is which is 53.26. You're not very far off. Not it. far, but, but it's incrementally every tenth of a nod or every few kilometres an hour is harder and harder and harder to get. We're in your shed and we're going to look at some of the equipment. Yeah. But when you look at the, the films you've made, it's a bit like drag racing. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, you start, you start off very slow um, because the, board, the boards are tiny, as you can see. This, this, yeah. little, this little board here is like a little water ski, an ironing board. Yeah, um, it's, it's about as wide as an ironing board, but yeah. it's probably about, about two metres, a bit more uh, high. It's two metres 20 long, I think, mm. and about oh, 30. This one's 37. This is, this is the record board, actually, 37 centimetres wide. 
and if you stood on it in no wind it would it would sink like a brick like it wouldn't float me at all okay um but once yeah once they get up and going you get planing on the water like they're literally only only just the very back end of it is in contact with the water and everything else is is um flying through the air you know it's incredibly nice is that carbon that's, fiber that's carbon fiber and color that's that's about three kilos that one um and okay. that's that literally that one was custom made for me that's as small as they get they don't they don't come smaller than that narrower thinner um, with less buoyancy uh, and then the two behind is basically slightly larger versions um, you know in a lighter wind you use a slightly bigger board and slightly bigger sail and fin and whatever you know as yeah. you see there's a bunch of sails here a bunch of sails what's that one for it's absolutely so, enormous so it's three times wider yeah, that one's enormous and it's it's five times the buoyancy that's the hydrofoil board so you can see the the hydrofoil sitting there beside it so okay it's like in america's cop yacht it's it's got a, a foil going down then these Wing, wing Wings, things yeah. on so, the bottom. So, so that board, that's a wing yeah, there. That's that's the wing of part of the hydrofoil. So the boards basically fly over the water uh, a meter uh, over the water once they're up and flying, and the only thing that's actually in the water is the wings of the hydrofoil, just like America's Cup's boats it's now. Just keeping, um, it's just keeping you down. Yeah. So yes. th it's kind of a, a revolution in all types of sailing, but foiling once once the board is unstuck from the water and flying over it, then yeah. it all becomes so efficient. Um, that you can do it in much, much lighter winds. So the hydrofoil stuff, I can get going in about seven knots of wind with a not a particularly big sail. And I'll and in that wind speed, you know, that's a force three to four, let's say. It's yeah. force three-ish. In that wind speed, I can do tw about 22 knots board speed. Let's poke around a bit. Yeah, yeah. These uh, box here, they're all... So there's a box here of fins for the boards. This is actually the box I had with me in Luderitz. Um These little carbon fiber fins are what we use for speed. So you'll see they're very... 30 centimeters? 30, uh, that's uh, 19, 19 actually. They're very, very stiff. So very powerful. They're asymmetric in shape, means they only provide lift when you're going in one direction. You couldn't sail it the other way around. But the Luderitz course is obviously one direction only. Okay. And then we get out at the end, we're put onto a trailer and brought back upwind. You've got a box full of them. Box, yeah. That looks like a life jacket, but That's it's not a, really. Well, that is technically a life jacket, as in there's a buoyancy, but you'll see there's full of pockets, um, and we put in strips of lead, which you see here. In Luderitz, um, as I said, because I'm a lighter guy, I'm 81 kilos, and I'm sailing with guys who are 110, 120 kilos, um, you can add lead to your buoyancy jacket. Um, so basically, the, the bigger and heavier you are, the more powerful a sail you can counterbalance against, you know, yeah, the pull sure, that's, the pull yeah, that's yeah, coming yeah, from yeah. the sail. It's basically ballast, you know. But basically, the more power you can hold on to, the faster you will go. So, um, yeah, I add up, add up to 16 kilos of lead into the jacket um, to increase my body weight up to 97 kilos. Um, if you fall in, are you still going to float if there was more than will, 90 centimetres of order? You will actually just okay. because there's... The, in the rules you have to float so I know that I can get 16 kilos into this jacket and just just like they test you you know I was tested immediately after I got the record I had to go in and the um, the ratifying people from the, the sailing speed records council will note it all down you know so basically you have to lift your hands and feet into the air and if you go down like a brick you're you're just not disqualified like that that run doesn't count your shade here is a wonderland <laughs> really for yeah, yeah. people like me yeah. you've got sails and sails and sails so sails and sails and sails there's Again, there's different types of, of windsurfing. There's different types of sails to go with them. So smaller ones for stronger winds, bigger ones for lighter winds. You know, just like reefing a sail on a sailing boat or whatever. Yeah. Just like sailing, you know, you need different sizes of, of sure. equipment. for the, for. So you have to pre prepare. Now, you live out here in Loch Shinny. You told me you go windsurfing every day if you can. 
If I can, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do have jobs, I have two jobs actually, but um, if I can windsurf, I'll, I'll even try and get an hour in every single day if I can between between jobs. Um, if you can, you're, you have to be very flexible to follow. Again, trying to find the ideal conditions. Okay. You know, we have conditions where, you know, I look at the, the forecasting is so good, the weather apps and stuff now, yeah. and we're very... De- what, what ones do you use? Um, particularly one called Wind Guru. Um, yeah, yeah that is probably the best. It's, I would say it's the best. Um, and it's, it's worth every single windsurfing, sailing and kiting spot around the world at this stage is on the list of places. Um, and it's using the historical data to see how things went. But, you know, we can look ahead. I'd say Winguru up to three days ahead is almost on the button almost every time. Mm-hmm. So we were just talking about it a minute ago for some friends messaging. And it's like, oh, actually, Monday looks good for Donegal. And, you know, depending on exactly the wind angle that we're looking for may depend if we go to that beach or this beach or go to a speed course or go to a wave place and you know and, and it they're, yeah they're very reliable so you know everything we do is based on what's possible to do you know we're not being stupid about what we go and do you know and and you know you'll know if the wind is right for a certain spot and and, and based on wind guru um or based on forecasting like that really you know we depend on it it's it's it, we're blessed now to have it really will you go back to namibia next year I would love to. Um, I thought about this last night. Like, again, I didn't get the absolute ideal conditions maybe to get what I think I'm capable of, which I think is somewhere 51 to 52 knots average speed over the 500 meters. But the real question is, if I go back, will I get those conditions or not? Mm. So it's kind of a, you know, I'm very satisfied with what I got um, because we had very good conditions, very strong wind. And and on the two last days, I actually stayed on for a week um, because the forecast wasn't so good until the very last week. Um, but on the two days where it was very windy, I ended up being fourth fastest on both of those days with the biggest, fastest guys in the world being there. And it's, that's actually given me a ranking for the year on the GPS um, rankings of sixth, sixth overall in the world. Um, so I'm very, very satisfied with that. But at the same time, I haven't found out maybe what I can ultimately do so yeah we'll, we'll see if i'm lucky enough to get the opportunity um and the sponsorship and the time off and all the rest of it of course i'll try Oshin van Gelderen speaking to me in his shed in loch shinney and if you think the van Gelderen name is familiar it is his father was the renowned and groundbreaking wildlife filmmaker garrett van Gelderen. and you can check out coverage of Oshin's speed sailing on his facebook and instagram pages windsurf777 and by the way that weather website he mentioned is called Winguru. and Oshin is breaking speed records on his board but a much slower type of seafaring was undertaken by a frenchman in an experiment back in the 1950s norman freeman has this extraordinary tale of ocean survival some 70 years ago a small frenchman astonished the world he set out alone across the atlantic without food or water. Dr. Alan Bombard wanted to prove it was possible to survive by living off the sea. A medical doctor and biologist who worked in a coastal hospital, he knew that many survivors of shipwrecks later died of thirst and starvation while in lifeboats. Bombard was convinced that most of these deaths were avoidable. While rainwater was the obvious answer to thirst, he believed that drinking small amounts of seawater could sustain the body for up to five days 
without ill effect. He understood that a fish's body was made up of between 60 and 90% water. Any fish caught by those in a lifeboat could provide some liquid and nutrition. Bombard studied the living organism sea water, knowing that some whales fed off the plankton that floated in the oceans. How to harvest this source of nutrition occupied his mind. He then came up with the idea of a fine net trawling along behind the boat that would collect enough plankton to add vitamin C to his diet. News got round that this man intended to brave the Atlantic without anything to eat or drink. He was going to set out in a rigid inflatable dinghy with a rudimentary sail and rudder. He was derided in France and called Dr. Fool. He called the small vessel Le Heretique as a gesture of his rejection of accepted beliefs about survival at sea. He set off from the Canary Islands in October 1952. The only backup he had was a first aid medical kit and sealed survival rations in the case of a serious emergency. He took with him an ordinary fruit press to squeeze the nutritious liquid out of any fish that he caught. Unable to catch any fish the first six days, he survived on small amounts of seawater. Then, with a makeshift tarpoon made of a knife bound to an oar, he speared a dorado, a large dolphin-like fish. Not alone did it provide him with liquid and food, but one of its bones was shaped like a fish hook. Bombard used this at the end of a fishing line. He never went hungry after that. In addition, he swallowed some of the plankton slurry he dredged every day. He endured some heavy seas and gales in his small craft. There were times it was nudged by sharks, swordfish and even a curious whale. After some weeks, a British ship sighted him and gave him his position in the ocean. He was still far from land. He eventually landed in Barbados on the 23rd of December, having completed a journey of 4,400 kilometres. He had lost about 25 kilograms and his body was covered in a rash. But he had survived. His achievement won him worldwide renown. Bombard's story and his theories were not accepted everywhere. It was even suggested that he must have taken some fresh water with him. However, there was no denying his grit and determination in setting out alone on an amazing journey across the Atlantic. He had underlined the reality that knowing how to live off the sea could sustain those who found themselves in a lifeboat far from land. Norman Freeman The Marine Institute, in partnership with the University of Galway's Marine Research Unit, has just released the findings of an in-depth study of Ireland's ocean economy, or how much the sector is worth to the country. Professor Stephen Hines of the University of Galway told me what they'd found. This report, it's looking at the Ireland's ocean economy um, and, and just for your listeners, we, we define that as, as the, any economic activity that directly or indirectly uses the sea as an input or produces an output for use in a sea-specific activity. So we're talking, you know, there's 13 industries in total that we look at. But just in terms of the headline figures then for the ocean economy, you know, it, it generates maybe in the region of, of 4.9 billion in turnover it makes a direct economic contribution in terms of a contribution to GDP of, of about 2.1 billion. It employs over 30, 32,000 uh, full-time equivalent individuals. 
Um, and, you know, if, if you look at the direct and an indirect imp, uh, contribution to GDP, well, then you're talking about uh, something something in the region of 1.6% of national output. Uh, the last time we put out this report, it was uh, focused, the, the reference year was 2018. Uh, and in this one, in the update now, we're, we're focusing on the period 2019 to 21. And, and you found uh, that, that the, the ocean economy shrunk in that time. It did, and that's not. I mean, it's not unexpected. But even you know, you, we've we've gone through Brexit, um, COVID, so so it's not unexpected that that it did shrink, and in particularly in relation to the makeup of the ocean economy, because you've got the likes of marine tourism would be always one of the top uh, industries in terms of gross value added and turnover. So obviously, that tourism took a massive hit during during COVID. Um, so there was, uh, you know, in say in 20, uh, 2021, where there's a good uh, we see a, a bounce back in terms of the ocean economy. But and we see that in the general Irish economy as well. You're talking about uh, growth rates of, in the region of 17 percent. But it's even a, a, a much larger uh, bounce back in terms of the ocean economy being driven in the main by uh, or like I said, tourism uh, saw a strong uh, rebound, but also you have, for the first time, we're seeing the importance of oil, the oil and gas uh, industry here, uh, and that's been driven by by the large increases in price that we see in 2021. Uh, and we know, while we don't put out figures for 2022, we know that's going to, you know, even be uh, uh, more important uh, in 2022. Stephen, we've had on the programme many times fish producers, fishers saying that their industry has been devastated in recent years, massive reductions. Have you found that? Yeah, we see, we do see uh, substantial reductions in terms of turnover and and in, in terms of GVA. So you're talking about uh, a reduction of 8% in 2020 and again in 2021 in terms of turnover for the, for the Irish Sea fishing uh, fleet and in terms of uh, gross value added, you're talking about a reduction of one percent in, in 2021. So it, it's been a difficult period, particularly they were particularly affected in terms of Brexit and reductions in, in quota. You're looking at probably a loss of 15 percent in quota. Uh, and I know you've had Patrick Murphy on uh, talking about this issue as well as the disruptions of COVID and, and reductions in, in demand and, and price in 2020 uh, and only slight recovery really in 2021. And we have a decommissioning round coming up. Will that will that add add more to that reduction? That's uh, the the scrappage scheme. Uh, it's it's going to see uh, uh, a reduction in the fleet, and I suppose they're reacting to the to the reductions in quota that are there, and also to the to the substantial increase in costs because uh, they're particularly hard hit in terms of fuel, and that's such an important uh, uh, component of their cost structure. You you also speak in the report about the demographic change in Ireland's coastal economy. What have you found there? So we're, we're seeing, um, we just looked at the initial figures that are out uh, in 2020 from the 2022 census. Um, and and we, we're just seeing how they changed from since 2016. Um, and, and we see it, it's not dramatically different from what we see in terms of the national average. You're talking about a, a, a seven, seven, just over 7% increase in uh, in the population in total. And then it's just, it's, we see uh, for coastal areas, it's slightly less. It's just, uh, but not significantly. So you're, you're just talking about maybe 
uh, half a percentage point difference between the coastal areas and the national average. So they are increasing. Uh, the slight uh, variations, depending on whether you're talking about the the north uh, north and western region or the other southern region, but in general, it's very close to the national average. The the constriction in the fishing industry itself. Are you able to tell if that's going to have a dem- demographic change as time goes on, as Patrick Murphy and others claim it will do? Well, we can't say that directly. Uh, no, but you might expect you might expect it. Uh, it will because uh, we do know from from where these businesses are located. Uh, you know, there there there's communities like Killy Beggs and Castletown Bear that are, you know the whole region is so reliant on on the the fishing industry and, and connected uh, industries to it. Um, so it will have it is likely it will have a, 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 an effect there. Now you know there's there's other opportunities coming down the road. You know and, and People are talking now a lot about the uh, offshore renewable energy uh, sector and what that might mean for these kind of regions and for those people who have the skill sets of being out uh, on the water uh, and bringing that to bear in terms of the the, they're going to, the personnel they're going to need to service these uh, offshore platforms. But that's not much good, I suppose, to these communities at the moment. And it is, it is, uh, you know, it, it is a difficult time for, for these communities and for those regions that are so reliant on the on the fishing uh, sector. Professor Stephen Hines. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, check out WinGuru and stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.